And because of what's happening in our capitalist society, there is no direct correlation between our labor and the reward. And that fosters a lot of emotions, a lot of experiences, and a lack of resources, okay? Okay. And so there is an untouched um, animosity that are within people, and I'm and I'm talking about people in general right now. I'm not talking about uh, racial categorization. I'm gonna come back to that. Okay. But there is an untouched animosity, anger in people because they're working hard, they're doing what they're supposed to do, they're playing by the rules, they understand meritocracy, but they're not reaping the benefits. Welcome to the Hardwood Podcast, a program dedicated to sharing ideas, thoughts, and voices of respected professionals in environmental studies that care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. They all have lived and have work experiences that add to their outlook and understanding of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And we on the Hardwood Podcast are committed to sharing the voice as well as making space for others to ponder our dialogues. I just want to say that I'm really excited because this is one of the most brilliant people that I know, seriously. And um, also a very decorated scholar as well. I'm talking to Dr. Robert K. Perkins, uh, who is an administrator also at Norfolk State University, originally from Buckingham, Virginia. And he and I actually met at Iowa State. You know, maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. Uh, but I'm really sitting excited right now. So I'm going to just go cut it and then just go into, hey, Dr. Perkins, how you doing this morning? I'm doing well. I'm tripping because you said brilliant. I don't know where you got that from, but okay, we'll go with it. I use that word intentionally, though, and I, and, I'm, and I use it because I really do feel, well, I use it first personally and professionally as it relates to you because of the impact I feel that you had on me. Mm. Okay, and that time still have, you know. Uh, we met when we were in grad school, and you really uh, turned out to be more than just a best friend, but more like a beacon of light, you know, because at the time, you know, I was still, I think, figuring myself out and still learning, you know, who I was, you know, as a black man in particular. But I was confident that I was a black man. I embraced loving being black, but then to be in a space like Iowa State, it was just great to uh, have such, a, you know, a beautiful person that it really became my friend slash roommate but who also helped me to be confident in who I am. Like, T, you can do this. Thomas, go ahead and, you know, you know, do this and help me to understand that what I was seeing around me, I wasn't crazy. It's just that, no, just say what you see, because you see it, you're not losing it. We, we, we are from the South, you know, mm-hmm. and just how you would always, <laughs> right. you know, bring it back with Virginia, Alabama, Virginia, Alabama. So that's why I say brilliant, because to go through all of that and to be where you are and to still be here, you don't do that not being smart. You do that by just, you know, figuring a lot of things out. So I just want, I just, I want to give you that, that credit myself. And well, other thank people, you. y'all just had to catch up and wake up. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So thank you for your time again today. We're going to go into it. You know, um, the Hardwood podcast, sir, is uh, really built around talking about the intersectionality around diversity, the environment. And we really do a play on words with heartwood, you know, talking about how do the woods impact the heart? How does your heart impact the woods being the forest or being the environment? Uh, but you have a very amazing background. 
Uh, and I think that also leads into why you think so wonderfully. So you are sociologists, I know. But I I'd like to know, how did you even get into that? Coming from VA, coming from Virginia, and just every other place you've been, how did you do that? Like, why? Please. Well, I fell in love with sociology by accident. Um, when I was growing up, all that I knew is that I wanted to help people. I didn't know how I was going to help people, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to shine a light on understanding from my perspective. Now, as a little boy, you don't have this big world view or anything like that, but I did know that people's heart was hurting or were hurting. And I wanted to find a way, my own little way, of creating an environment where people wouldn't hurt so much. Um, as you mentioned, I grew up in a small rural county in Virginia. And Blacks were very much separated from whites. The only time that we actually intermingled were at sporting events, and half the time we didn't even sit together then, or in school, or in the grocery store. That was it. Um, churches were separate, um, our lives were separate, our communities were separate. As a matter of fact, I remember driving down um, the highways and we used to call roads because <laughs> they weren't fancy. <laughs> we had one red light in the entire county. <laughs> <laughs> but we, but we've grown since this. Now we got two, so we're excited. <laughs> it's true, <laughs> and we got a McDonald's. Go Buckingham! But so, <laughs> so, but that was our reality. So we were ride down the roads, and um, we would look at churches, for example, and say, "Oh, I can tell that's a white church. I can tell that's a black church." And we could, by the way that the churches were built, how nice they looked. Um, whether or not they were in positions of community promise. I mean, you could just tell, and that's how we would know to them. And we were right all of the time. And so, but when I went to my church, it was so much love and conviction, but also there was an underlying pain there with African-Americans that I couldn't put my finger on, but I knew it was there. And I just wanted to help. And so when I first went to college, I majored in social work. And um, I think I was there for three years. And it, it was getting there, but it still wasn't festering or affirmating the way that I wanted to. I still know I wanted to help. And this was a profession to help people, but it really wasn't attacking what I wanted to attack. And, 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 and remember, I still couldn't really name it. Mm -hmm. I just know what I was feeling. And so um, we had a conference and I, my job as a student was to go pick up um, certain individuals from the airport and take them to the conference hotel. I picked up a guy and you're going to know this name. His name was J. Herman Blake. <gasps> yes, Dr. Blake. <laughs> I picked Dr. Blake up from the airport and took him to the hotel. And that was like a 15 minute ride. And in that 15 minute ride, that man changed my entire trajectory in my life mm -hmm. because that man got into my vehicle and he thanked me for picking him up and all that. Right. And I'm um, asking who he was and what does he do? And he started talking and I was like, that's it. That's it right there. That's what I want to be. And he talked about social inequality in a way that I've never heard it talked about before. And that man in that 15 minutes was able to name it. I was finally able to name what I had been feeling for 20 plus years. He named it. And I and when he got out of my car <laughs> at that hotel, <laughs> I looked at him and I said, 
it was a pleasure meeting you and I'm going to be you one day. And he <laughs> fell out laughing. Now, as life would have it, fast forward um, 15 years. Uh, I'm at Iowa State University and they asked me why did I major in social sociology and uh, pursuing my master's and the PhD at the time and I gave the story that I just gave to you and the um, professor of the course said well you know Dr. Blake works here on campus I said are you kidding me <laughs> I, was, I was like no way she's like yes he's in the African-American studies um area I was like are you joking and I had to compose myself in class. When that class was over, I beelined straight to his office and I said, I know you don't remember me, but you changed my career trajectory and I owe you. And anyway, Dr. Blake and I have had a, um, a lifelong connection ever since. Wow. Uh, um, so that's how I became a sociologist. Um, and, and when I dove into the literature, I learned a lot about race and how race was a social construct yeah. and how we reified it day in and day out in our society. Mm -hmm. But what I learned most was that African-Americans, even in higher education, was being pigeonheld mm -hmm. to one area of investigation. Okay. And they just kept telling me, you need to read about the black, it's, um, 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 you need to write about the black experience, the black. And I'm up here thinking, I live the black experience. I really don't mm -hmm. want to study the black experience. And, you know, and I was wondering, well, why you're not studying the white experience? Why y'all keep asking me to study the black one and you're not studying the study? The and then one day in class, it actually came up. Mm -hmm. And it was, and, um, and I said, you know what? And you might need to edit this part, but I'm going to tell you what I said in the classroom. I said, the reality is that white people are not all that interesting. I said, we're so fixated on surviving, negotiating, um, getting over hurdles, crawling under hurdles, moving around hurdles, dragging our um, children along, dragging our love along, helping our parents and pushing them forward. We're so fixated on surviving and getting as much of that pie, even though we know it's on a slither that was designed for us. Right. We were so fixated on that that we didn't really have time to investigate other races and other matters. And so what that led me to understand is not only is race a problem, but privilege is a problem in our society, in particular, white privilege. Okay. Now, if you, if you don't mind, because you are bringing, you are uncovering so many things, you know, and I just, I just want to say, because I remember when we were in school, it was conversations like this that yeah. really, I think, helped me anchor you know, and kept me, you know, centered, you know, as a man and also as a black man, you know, because what, as I'm listening to you, you know, what I'm hearing is, you know, I, I, I love everything that you said, you know, but then, you know, but then I just like to add a little bit to it, not because it needs it, just like, you know, when I hear that, why people aren't that interesting. Okay, wait a minute. There's a people who have had an existence in this country where it's like they're thriving and they're in a different type of position. And when you have that privilege, it seems like more activity goes towards building that privilege, okay, and establishing that power, which means you're not really exploring and getting to know other communities and other people. You're more so subjugating them. Then the other groups of people, since they have to deal with this stuff, they're busy trying to survive, and they're like creating all of these other ways to live 
and to exist and to be and try to be in peace because they're not trying to tick off the people who basically have all of that privilege. And so then look what they get to generate. They get to generate music. They get to generate all this wonderful food, all this creativity, all this art that shows their genius, that shows that, and then that's what makes them so great. And then other people basically come in and want to take it, but we've already lived it. And then you say, tell us about the black experience. And you're like, you can just come home with me. Right. Why I got to do that? I'm, I'm, the black experience is how I got here. <laughs> so, you know, and, and so, no, I need you to analyze you and your individuals because that's a big part of the issue what we're dealing with right now in the world and why you want to explore us. No, we need to explore you. And that, yeah, yeah. go ahead, go, go, go ahead. I just, no, 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 I, I think you captured it perfectly. I think you captured it wonderfully. And um, so many times I make comments and I'm wondering, okay, how did it get across? I, did I, did people hear it the way I intended it? And oftentimes they do, you know, because that's what educators do. But, uh, <laughs> but, but we're, as always, we're talking to Thomas. <laughs> he get me to say stuff that I probably normally would be a little bit more gentle with. But no, I, I think you're absolutely right. That, that's what it is. And also, mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by interesting is that there is no push against the status quo. They are the status quo. And so therefore, it's not interesting to say, okay, how did you maneuver through organizations? Because it was built for you to maneuver through organizations. So yes. what is interesting is how do someone with an organization was not built for maneuver through? How did that person get there? Mm -hmm. And, and um, harking back to ISU, um, and you, you've experienced it as well. I had so many people come to me when I first got there and they would say, oh, do you play football? I was like, no. Did you used to play football? Uh, no. I'm here because I'm smart, damn it. You know, <laughs> and I would have to actually say that. I would have to say, they could not understand how it was possible for a person in this body that I possess to get to Iowa State and not be given a token, not be given handouts. And it was really based on my intelligent and um, accomplishment. They, it had to be some other reason. And, and, and that was a problem for me. And I called it out. And uh, when I was there, um, and I know this is not all about ISU, but I just want to capture um, the educational experience. Uh, and when I was there, it was only one other black person in the program, in the sociology program. That was um, a brother named Eric. I remember. And I would walk down the hall, and people would always say to me, hi, Eric. Hi, Eric. And one day, I got so sick of being called Eric, <laughs> and I just said it. I said, look, my name is Robert. I said, look mm -hmm. at my face. Don't just look at my skin and my body. Mm. I have a face. Mm. Do you know that was the last time anybody in that building ever called me Eric? Last time. That was the last, last time. time. And I only said that to, and it was a professor, and I only said that to one professor. And she must have went back and sent out an email or something and said, everybody start looking at Roberts and Eric's face. <laughs> because all they would see was a black male's body walking down the hall. They didn't even give me the courtesy or the respect or humanity of identifying my face. Whoa. Wait a minute. Now, let, let, Rob, no, Dr. Perkins. No, you can call me Robert. I like okay, that. okay, okay, Robert. Uh, I, question about it. Mean, I know the answer already, but I need to ask you, what year was that? 
Oh gosh, that was um, two thousand no, ninety eight to two thousand. I believe that experience I think was in nineteen ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. Right. Okay, and then we met in two thousand. Okay, and then so many things continued. Though some things actually yes. continued. The reason I'm saying that's because here we are in twenty twenty, right? And I still work with students now, black students in particular, whether they come from HBCUs, which I'm always going to show love to the historical black colleges and universities because I'm a product. And of course, I'm talking to a product and a yes. person who's also elevating it. Big ups. I was going to show pride. Big ups, y'all. Yeah. Spartan <laughs> bulldog. And them bulldog. <laughs> but he doesn't like a Spartan man. Ain't Go ahead. Like <laughs> Look, you got to compare the bands. You know, like, yeah, oh, you man. See? But you see what I'm saying? You see, but you don't want me to what... bring up the Spartan Legion. You don't want the show band of the South. Come on, man. Look, okay. Uh, but next podcast, I got you. <laughs> <laughs> you see, everybody who's listening, this is what I'm talking about. It's like you're here. It's not like healthy competition. No, this is love. This is what we do. Correct. Yeah. But this is what. But then everything that Dr. Perkins has shared, that's what we experience, and some of that even goes into why we do what we do and how we do it. For those people who don't like to see Black Pride, I'm like, but well, then I need you to shut down racism. You need to shut down the things that have shut down the identities and the voices of people for so long, or at least tried to kill us, genocide and get rid of us. And here we are still here. But I was saying that I still have students to this day, 2020, who don't realize that, hey, what you're asking about, you still asking about the same stuff that I dealt with 20 years ago. You know, and so I don't try to talk to them like you should know, but I am like, in some ways you should know some things because it's not that the world has changed. Maybe your exposure to some things have changed. You know, maybe your understanding has changed. Maybe if you've read a few new books and you've been able to travel other places that other people couldn't early in life, but the world is still the way that, I say it, it's still the way that I remember it. You know, it's yeah. still the way, you know, I still have to move a certain way in order to get people, you know, to understand and appreciate me, even though what I'm saying is sometimes over their head, even though it's right in their face. It's not even really over your head, it's just in your face, but they don't want to see it as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I like to kind of switch a little bit of the questioning, not the challenger intelligence, because I know it's already there, you taught me, but to just kind of see if we can do something together, we can kind of draw a well, but draw a link to something. Okay, so I'm a forester, sociologist, all right? And the country right now is still burning and dealing with civil unrest and in protest, particularly because of what happened with this individual, George Floyd in Minnesota, okay, and Deputy uh, Chauvin, you know, and this man dying, neck, knee on the back of the neck, eight minutes and 46 seconds, basically nine, nine minutes, but even passed before that. And so I'm often asked now, sir, can you tell us how do we, I'm just, I'm bringing that up and I'm gonna go somewhere else, but I'm trying to bring it back. I hope I can do it. Thomas, can you tell us how we get more people of color involved and how do we address climate change and these issues around the environment? And I'm like, okay. But then they go, oh, but, but my heart is hurting with all of these things that are happening, you know, in the country that's impacting in particular black people, but you know, black and brown people, period, you know. What I'd like to ask you is, could you draw, is it possible, or maybe we can do it together, a correlation between what's going on in the country as relates to race and society and what happened to George Floyd and see if we can draw it to what's going on in the environment and how black and brown people, or poor people, period, are still living in places that are adversely affected by redlining, climate change, and all of those things. Could we like to see if we can just draw something real quick and just see like sure. we can say, here's the problem? 
Yeah, I, I do think it would, this is going to need to be a partnership between the two of us. Okay. Because, you know, we've always solved the world's problems <laughs> in our conversation. Yes, we uh, have. <laughs> um, well, from the sociological perspective, I would argue that Karl Marx had it correct. Because Karl Marx argued that it, it, was, it is our human nature to reap the benefits of our labor. Now, when we think about labor, we're talking about our work. What have we done? What did we put our bodies on the line for? There should be a direct correlation to how we function and what we do and the benefits of that. And because of what's happening in our capitalist society, there is no direct correlation between our labor and the reward. Okay. And that fosters a lot of emotions, a lot of experiences, and a lack of resources, okay? Okay. And so there is an untouched um, animosity that are within people, and I'm, and I'm talking about people in general right now. I'm not talking about uh, racial categorization. I'm gonna come back to that. Okay. But there is an untouched animosity, anger in people because they're working hard, they're doing what they're supposed to do, they're playing by the rules, they understand meritocracy, but they're not reaping the benefits. Why is it that these people that work three different jobs in a total of 80 hours plus a week, and yet can barely make their mortgage payments. They can't afford to send their children to the groceries, I mean, to um, the movies and have a nice family outing, yet alone a whole entire vacation. You follow me? I follow you. That creates animosity and anger. Something is wrong, but they can't name it. You remember earlier I said I couldn't name I it, name right? It. Right. Okay. Now you take that as an energy for all people in America. All right. Then you multiply that by racism, by sexism, by homophobia, by xenophobia, and all those things. So now what you're saying is not only am I not reaping the benefits of my work, I'm not even being allowed to have my own nature. Wow my own nature. And I think the real problem in society and maybe even in the world, we have become so sophisticated until we have detached human beings from being natural beings. Woo. <laughs> yes. And then when we look at forestry and the trees, in the waters, in the lakes, in the beaches, in the sand, in the rural areas, in the crops. They are our last best resource to get us out of the prejudice and the racism that we're stuck in in society today. Oh, man. So while we're mm. cutting them down, we need to be learning from them. Okay. So that's where I see the connection between humans and um, our natural resources. The fact that we have actually dissipated the connection. The way that we act today is as if we was not even evolved of the same materials that makes the, the trees, that make the rocks, that make the um, skies, that make the clouds. I mean, we are all one unity. 
So the fact that we have decided that we don't need our natural resources order them for nutrition or housing, we have created a debacle and abyss that we can't even get ourselves out of now. So until we get back to the natural order of things, we will continue to strive and we continue to go in circles. And um, you talked a, a minute ago about um, environmental racism and things of that nature. The problem is, yes, environmental racism, but that is such a small problem too. Environmental assault. We have assaulted our natural environments and by assaulting our natural environment, we have assaulted ourselves. Mm. Okay, uh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, you asked me to be real. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I said, oh, oh wait, wait. <laughs> You're giving me too much past the weight, you know. Okay. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is so on point. This is so in line. Okay, so what I like to do, I like to do the same thing, you know, just okay. do it, you know, like in a similar way. No, not to correct, because everything was correct. I just want to now add from a forester's perspective. Uh, so I remember when I went to, to my undergrad institution, Alabama A&M, and then I learned about forestry. We learned about it uh, first, like from people like Gifford Pinchot, studying individuals like him, who's a German forester, who really is the father of it, as we understand. And then Aldo Leopold, who wrote a book called The Sand County Almanac, uh, later that really became somewhat of the Bible for our discipline. And it really guided how we, uh, you know, how we practice, basically. You know, it guided how we harvested, how we created this industry. How do we take, uh, you know, trees from the land? How do we take timber, replant, do all of these things? And we've learned how to do it for the purposes of what we do in our society, for the uses of building houses, you know, as we're, you know, both, you know, like sitting in now and things like that. So that's what I learned about how to do it. And then the fact that you could go work and make money and, you know, and we can make habitat for wildlife, all of these things. But the thing that I noticed is that I was in a discipline where it wasn't a lot of people that looked like me. A lot of people they don't, I noticed I don't see a lot of folks who look like me. I, I went to a black school, mm -hmm. but I still didn't see a lot of black people doing this discipline. And so then from there, when I got the opportunity to go and work in Montana, you know, before you and I met, you know, and then come to Iowa State, I always had those experiences where I was like the only person in the county, only black person in the county or the only one in the department or one of the few. Okay, so that experience then helps me go, okay, I, I wanna do this stuff in the environment, but I still wanna connect our people. Going back to thinking about, now when I mentioned those two individuals, Gifford Pinchot, Aldo Leopold, well, if you fast forward, and those individuals actually went to Yale, okay, you know, so this kind of will add or implicate Yale some, you know, in a lot of what's happening, but the School of Forestry, founded at Yale really started what we understand around the country and maybe in some ways the world what we practice is forestry. So now you have that, right? Okay, so I'm just gonna sit that there. Now when you look at the way I think that the country really came together, because Yale was put together before the country was together actually, <laughs> you know, oh, before wow. Connecticut. Yeah, you know, I mean, 319 years old. You know what I'm saying? The harbor's older than that. So even the way that we understand our country and the fabric of this country, those kind of institutions really are at the epicenter of it. You know, mm -hmm. because those were the priests. Mm -hmm. Those were the government officials. Those were the academicians. Those were the trustees. Okay, they were the ones who really spread so many things around the country, but in particular in the Southeast. Okay, I know I'm, I sound like I'm everywhere, but, but, but I'm really not. Because when you look at the issues of redlining and how the country was developed, 
how the government was actually designed and developed. The fact that black people weren't even fully recognized for people in the constitution. Okay, the fact that we weren't a part of those discussions. Okay, when the country was being put together, we were just a part of the labor going back to what you said. So you build it and you build it and you build it and you even promise 40 acres and a mule, but you never get it. The only thing you get is empty promises. So then when you try to, let's say after slavery and reconstruction, you know, for a while we had black legislators, we had black leaders. We were able to even build what we know as black wall streets, three of them, one in Virginia, one in North Carolina, one in Oklahoma. And technically you can say you saw them in other places, but what happened to those as we didn't integrate, we built our own. They were destroyed. They were bombed, they were shut down. So even when we try to elevate ourselves and do it independently, it gets shut down as if we're doing something illegally. But that redlining issue is something that I want to bring up because then we're forced to live in places that are mm. now in some ways known as floodplains. So every mm -hmm. time it rains, like it's raining mm -hmm. down here in Raleigh, it floods. Okay, every time a storm or something happens, we get disastrously hit. But what I try to tell people is don't talk about it like it's a coincidence that it's happening. Our community was pushed in those spaces just like indigenous people were pushed on reservations. We're pushed in spaces where certain people don't want to be and then all of these things are happening. Then you want to come and say, the people that are adversely affected by it, we want them to be a part of it. And I'm like, but you haven't shown the respect for what those people went through and why they're there. And you haven't shown your understanding of what they're up against. You're talking like, oh, everything is fixed and fine and we just need to deal with it. And I love what you said, bringing up Karl Marx, you know, and, you know, and these philosophers who have informed what we do. And I wanted to bring up the foresters who inform what we do because mm -hmm. those individuals help craft what we study and how we did it. And I want to say that that's a part of the problem. And that's why I wanted to draw a connection. So then when you get to George Floyd and what happened, black man, white cop on top of him, we go, oh man, you know, oh, here we go again. It's race again. I'm like, no, it's like you said, no, it's race. It's class. Okay, it's so many other issues because most of the people being killed, most of them, most of them are not high school educated. There's something that I noticed that they don't have diplomas. I'm not saying that, oh, go graduate high school and that saves us, but I noticed how we're being targeted. All of these things that are in common, they're black. I look at the ages of them, right? You're like a teenager to let's say maybe 50. So you're in this age where it's almost like you're dangerous. You know, I'm scared of you, you know? And these men are just trying to live and just doing what they're doing, but we become the victim, we become the criminal. But no one has analyzed the criminality that led to how the country was formed and how we got here. Mm -hmm. And so then we're analyzed as criminals, not our forefathers. We're looked at as that we're the problem, not the agencies that continue to practice and do the things that are going on in the country, city, state, and world. And so that's why I wanted to draw that connection that what we see happening in the environment has already happened in government, it's already happened politically, it's already happened with us racially. And just like you said, how we treat each other is how we've already treated the environment. And if we can't respect that because we're not separate from it, why, do, why in the world do we think that we're going to respect each other? And that's how I always loved our conversations, how we drew those parallels every time we talk. Mm -hmm. Hey, that was great, man. Uh, I don't know if I was supposed to stand up and clap, but that was good. <laughs> or get up and shout. You know how, we, you know how we do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you remember Friendship Baptist Church, right? You remember those days, man? And I remember those days. I remember those I, days. I, I miss um, Pastor Shane right now. You know, mm. in so many regards, um, our religion has been a source of um, refuge. Yes for African Americans, and I know we're more diverse now than we've ever been in terms of religiosity, but it's still a cornerstone in how we um, migrate 
through this crazy world. It's still a cornerstone. Um, but no, what you said, man, is absolutely on point and, and very succinct. And I think that we need to do more conversation about interdisciplinary and how we can uh, formulate better ideas. But going back to um, George uh, Floyd, Floyd. Mm-hmm. it captured the attention of the state of Minnesota. Mm-hmm. It captured the attention of America. Mm-hmm. And it captured the attention of the world. And I, and for total disclosure, I have not watched the video. Okay. I cannot okay. watch the video. Okay. I cannot. I have seen stills. I've seen a couple of clippings while watching the news, but when the video comes, I push pause and then I fast forward or I turn away. But in one of the pictures that I saw, for me, it tells the story. And that's when that officer was over top of George Mm -hmm. with his knee on his neck, his hand in his pocket, and him, his posture was so upright and strong. And that spoke <laughs> volumes to me about the entire history of African Americans in America. And here again, I saw it. I couldn't put words to it. But then when Al Sharpton gave that eulogy, And when he said, they've always had their knee on our necks, I said, that's it. (laughs) Those are the words for what I saw in that photograph. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, even in this moment, I'm floored of how this is still happening in 2020. Mm And you and you 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 said it because I lived it. Mm-hmm. I remember when I turned thirty, mm-hmm. and I said, "Finally, I can breathe. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about being pulled over anymore." Now I finally look old enough where I, I will not be harassed. I can finally stop looking over my shoulder. I can finally go into stores and not be watched and followed. I remember thinking that when I turned 30, I felt, I said, oh my God, I made it to 30. I made it. And I turned 30 while living in Iowa. I made it. Now, most people have victories when they turn or feel accomplished when they turn 18 or whatever. 30 was my goal. Mm -hmm. 30 was my goal. Mm -hmm. And then after I got to 30, I know I can just go. I know I can just be all I can be. I won't have all those strongholds on me. Mm. And I don't have refuge based on age anymore in this country. George was 42. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, But it was that nervous age between 18 and 25 where we felt, not we felt, but the stats show that African-Americans were most vulnerable. And I gave myself five years after 25. Mm-hmm. Just the case. And then when I hit 30, I was like, okay, this is it. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if people who haven't lived it would ever get it. Mm-hmm. There is a, I say about 60% of me want them to get it. 
But then it's that 40% of compassion that I have. I said, I don't want anybody to really understand it. Mm. I'd rather just get rid of it. I'd rather eradicate it uh -huh. because that fear. And when you look into your younger brothers and sisters and cousins and children's eyes and you watch them walk out that door and you, you literally take a deep breath and say a prayer because you are on pins and needles mm -hmm. until they come back home, until you hear their voice. And Thomas, um, mm -hmm. for the listening audience, mm -hmm. Thomas and I used to check on each other um, like three or four times a day. A day. We used to text each other, you all right, bro? You all right? Mm -hmm. We all call each other? Mm -hmm. Because it was so thick. Mm -hmm. And we were the only ones in our mm -hmm. programs. Yep. And, and it wasn't that people were... Um, it was that subtle racism and that covert racism that yes. kept premiating. So it, it was like mm -hmm. those little nicks and little hits and uh, those little experiences that culminate into a point where you was like, stop it. Stop it. And, yes. And we never, <laughs> <laughs> you remember, we never wanted to explode. We was like, we can't explode, man. Don't do it. Don't be the angry black man. Yeah, don't be the angry. Because don't that's be the last thing you wanted to be was the angry black man. Man. And so Don't we would it. call each other, man, and we would check in. It was like, you all right? And when we know um, the other person would have a uh, bad day, we would take each other out to dinner. We'll, we'll go um, riding our bikes or we'll do something mm -hmm. because we knew that if we didn't take care of each other, that mm -hmm. it would be disastrous. And not only for us, but our families. Mm. Because we were the ones that were able to get out and, and have this opportunity and, and right. do things and show the world. And, and we had a lot of promise that we, uh, was bestowed upon us. And we knew that we had to uphold it, even if, because mm -hmm. there were times where we said, forget it. But then we thought about our families. And then we sure thought is. about other black males. And we thought about other black women. We thought about the black families. Oh, no, we can't. Let me tell this quick story then. I know Please, you have a no, question. Uh, we went to, a, I'm talking to the wider audience. We went to a conference once in Atlanta. <laughs> you remember? <laughs> Sociology covered that thing was so yeah. hot. Ooh. <laughs> and we Don't forget the one in New Orleans, too. But yes, oh, yeah. No, we can't tell that one. But, <laughs> <laughs> but the one in Atlanta, uh, we came back, we went to an all day conference, and we were keep in mind, we've been living in Iowa for what, two or three years? <laughs> then we went to oh, Atlanta. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to Atlanta. So uh, I think it was in Atlanta two days, and we came back to the hotel and that night. I looked over at T. I said, Man, I ain't going back to Iowa. <laughs> I said, I'm planting right here. I'm not going back there, man. You remember that? <laughs> and Tia was like, I still remember it. You were like, hey, let's do it. Let's do it. But we realized we had to go back and finish when we were um when we had started. But anyway, <sighs> but it, it was um as African Americans, African being black and mm -hmm. being male, mm -hmm. I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change who I am. Yes. If I had to go back to my creator and he said, you can choose from any racial group to be, you can choose from either gender to be, what would you choose? I would still choose being a black man. I would choose it 10 times fold. I would choose being a black man. I choose. So the adversity 
is the adversities and we're going to make some dents in it. We're going to make some changes. And I'm grateful for your podcast because you're putting the word out in a way that has not been out there before. Um, and I revel in my skin and I revel in the being that I am because I know that the black community is going to rise out of this because the black family has always been the impetus. Always. Mm-hmm. Always. Yes. So that's where my yes. my my hope mm-hmm. stems from. It's mm-hmm. not and, and what well, I don't want to keep going, but that's where my hope okay. stems okay. from. Yeah. No, no, no. Mm-hmm. This is good. No, see what you're saying, see, that's why I'm looking forward to the audience hearing this because I feel like that's like I said, you helped me. You helped me to mature, you know. Uh men showing men love. Men yeah. saying, I love you. You know, you remember that, you know, like we, you know, yep. you helped me with that. Like, man, thanks, man. Being able to say, they being able to say, man, you look good. You good. Yep. And, yep. and I feel mm-hmm. funny, like, yeah, I, I, I do look good. You're right. Thank you, mm-hmm. man. You know, <laughs> you know, edging each other, all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's what we do. That's our community. That's really how we are. And that's why I still thank God that you were there. I still thank God that you're here. So I want to close out with this one question. When I start talking about it, it's going to, you, you, you will remember because I said, I want to ask you this. And okay. on this podcast, we're going to talk about it differently. The last podcast that you were on, and if you want to you know, mention it, you know, that's fine. Because I also want to say thank you for that. That was a, amazing. That was an amazing episode. You represented so strongly. And obviously, they really wanted you on that show. I could tell the way that they were questioning you. Um, but you know, you also understood how to engage and keep the people at the table. But something happened while you were on that interview. Someone called in or sent a mm-hmm. sent a question in, and the question. And so, just to let you know, uh, um, uh, everyone. I know that the podcast was, you know, heavily um, or heavy Republican. The individual was hosting uh, Dr. Perkins. You know, is a um, is is a Trump supporter. You know, but we're not saying that to say hate them or nothing. No, that's not what we're saying. We're just setting up, you know, like what was actually going on, and the fact that he was you know, um, graciously answering questions. And not saying in a way the host was, you know, calmly asking questions, you know, and nicely. A question came in about, okay, if you're so outraged about what happened with basically George Floyd and police brutality, and it was a, and it was a woman. I do know that. I don't, I don't know the, the race or, uh, you know, but I do know the gender, at least um, how they identified it. it was a woman. And the question was, then um, are you not outraged about the shootings and the killings going on in the south side of, of Chicago? You answered it a certain way on the show, but you and I had a conversation, right? And I said, you and I actually agreed with something. And I'd just like to ask you, if you don't mind, can you share, well, one, I am kind of directing this part of the interview, I'll admit, because that's my bias. What was the problem with that question that she asked? What was the problem with who it potentially came from that she asked? And how actually would you address that? And I'm just going to say it, bring it back to George Floyd. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, uh, thank you. Well, just one correction. It actually wasn't a podcast. It was a syndicated mm. radio show. Radio and, show. Um, That's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I'm not going to um, give the name of the show. Um, but um, the morning that I was on, they had 1.2 million listeners. Yep. And the day before, they had Corey Lewandowski on the show. And so that shows how strongly um, conservative or on the right they were. And um, Trump had actually been on this radio show for, I think they told me 10 times and things of that nature. So I I was in um, a different arena than I normally am in. And I have actually turned them down a couple of times from coming on the show because um, I felt that a lot of their stance 
Uh, was it from a position of understanding nor a position of wanting to understand? I thought it was from a position of re-election. And I just didn't want to be used as fodder for that. Uh, so that's why I turned it down before. But when the George Floyd murder occurred and um, Breonna Taylor's and and there were just so many things that was going on and all the protesters and rioters and the looters and the, and, um, uh, the police against the citizens, white people marching, black people. I just thought that it was time for me to say, Robert, if you're going to be this uh, great sociologist that you want to be, you have to talk to the other side and they have to talk to you. And so that's why I accepted the invitation. Now, when the caller called in, um, I'm not quite, I mean, when they text in, to be honest with you, I'm not completely convinced that anyone texts that question in. I believe mm. that was a question that they had for me. <laughs> and okay. he didn't want to ask me the question. So he said, okay, somebody text this question to me. Because okay. the question was written as if it was written even before my interview, because they said there's a leftist um, hypocrisy again. And I said, okay, how do you know what side I'm on? We didn't even talk politics. We just talked um, um, protests. So how do you even know where I stand in my political sphere? And then secondly, they said the hypocrisy between me not being outraged by black on black crime versus um, uh, police brutality on um, black crime. And we didn't even discuss black on black crime. So I don't know how they were able to say that I was a hypocrite about it. So I found that interesting. So I knew out the gate that this was the question that he wanted to ask and get my, well, he was hoping to catch me off guard. But the one thing that anybody who knows me know that I'm, is very rare you're going to catch me off guard. The best Mm -hmm. you can do is just come from your heart and hope and hope that I say something that you want to hear. But anyway, <laughs> but what he said, but my response was <clears throat> that there is a distinct difference between um, police brutality and black on black crime. Mm-hmm. When we talk about, well, first, yes, I'm outraged. I've yeah. always been outraged about the number of violence in inner city communities, in particular Chicago. Yeah. And historically, people know that I've made some very radical suggestions. Uh, for resolution in those communities. And I still stick with my resolutions and I'm not going to say what they are, but um, I had some very, very strong words. Mm-hmm. And I also am, uh, uh, um, I'm confident, overly confident that if these murders were taking place in white suburbia, they would have been controlled by them. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I, I look at it that way. So am I upset about it? Yes, I'm upset about it. Does it pains me? Yes, it pains me. Mm-hmm. Would I like to do something about it? Yes, I yes. want to do something about it. However, that does not excuse police brutality. Because when you have black on black crime, we're talking about micro to macro aggression, individual behaviors, individual, uh, individual wrongdoings to the extreme, to the horrible extreme. Yes. But when we talk about police brutality, we're talking about a systematic abuse of power that have led to black bodies being dead in the middle of highways and in their homes and in theaters and in other um, public spheres. That is a problem. See, it's one thing to commit a crime and have the criminal justice system to run its course and that person is punished. And it's another thing to have a crime 
committed in the criminal justice system protects the person that um, did the crime and act as if those victims are invisible, the families are invisible. Those are two completely different things and both of them need to be addressed. They are completely different social ills that needs medication. The other part of that, <laughs> the other part of that issue is, I mean, the question was, um, why do black people keep running to the Democratic Party? That's right. Oh, yeah. Has continued to fail over a number of years. That's right. Yep. And so I was prepared. That. I was getting ready to respond. He kind of cut me off. <laughs> wouldn't mm -hmm. let me respond because right. I think he knows what I was going to say. Yeah. I had an idea of what I was going to say because mm -hmm. I wasn't biting their bullet. And so, um, but since you're giving me a format, may I respond to that question? Please, 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 if you wouldn't mind, Dr. Perkins. Sure. Um, well, the question, and I think it's a good question, I think it's a valid question. Uh, why are African Americans supporting the Democratic Party overwhelmingly when their mm -hmm. policies have continued to not elevate African Americans to the point where they need to be? Now, right, right. Okay. I, I'm making that question a lot nicer than what it was sent to me, but I'm... That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. And That's the Republican nicer. Party has some ideas that they think that they can lift up the Black community. And so why aren't the Black community um, supporting Republicans um, at equal rates as Democrats when they have mm -hmm. some ideas for us as well? Yes. So here's my response. Number one, if you're going to talk to me, you need to talk to me and not about me. So if you want me on your um, political platform, put me on there as a member of the platform and not as a trophy or um, some kind of fishing net for votes. That's number one. Okay. And number two, if you want my vote, then you're gonna have to respect my being. And you don't respect my being by calling my mother a bee, by calling my aunts ignorant and dumb and stupid and calling my sisters dogs. So if you want me to listen to you, then you need to listen to me and respect me and my position as a black man in this society. Because there's one thing you don't mess with in our community is our black women, mm -hmm. just in case you didn't get the memo. Mm -hmm. So when you call those football players mamas bees, we heard you. When you call Maxine Waters dumb and stupid and um, the ignorance uh, women alive or whatever, we heard you. When you call Omarosa a dog, we heard you. And for those Republicans that are saying, we didn't say that, the president said that, you're under his camp. You have not distinguished yourself from the president of the United States they call Trump. So if you haven't disavowed, if you haven't told him he was wrong, if you hadn't put up initiatives to control his behavior, you all are under the same camp. So I don't care what policy you have, I can't hear you because I'm still hearing you calling my mother a bee because her son was um, peacefully protesting. So you don't get to do that. So for all these great initiatives that the Republican parties have, now I went beyond my emotions. And I went and I looked for these initiatives that they have. I hadn't seen it. So, I mean, I'm being, I'm being really- I know, real. you being honest, I know, I facetious, I know. I, I'm, I, I really want to know because what I did see was your supporters 
hitting a black man in one of your rallies. What I did see was your supporters surrounding one of my sisters, young sisters, in an um, offensive manner and just scaring her, and was very reminiscent of the institution of slavery, by the way, when um, slaves would escape from the home and they would circle them and um, scare and yell at them until they just fell on the ground. Or better yet, it was depicted in the movie Color Purple when they hit Oprah in the eye. We hadn't forgotten those either. That's so, right. So yeah. these are incidences that are real for us. Now, let's say that you have some policies. I can't hear your policy over the deafening silence of your outrage for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others. Yes. Where are the Republican senators, Congress people? Where are they? Why haven't they spoken? Why haven't they had a forum? You want my vote? You want my vote? But you okay with my body being dead in the street? Come on, man. You're going to have to do better than that. And if you think that we don't catch your game in 2020, which you're not very good at, we will never catch your game. <laughs> because, you know, I was, I was thinking about this, Thomas. I was thinking about this. And you know how we used to play with numbers? And yeah. We would talk about the meaning of numbers and we would talk about sure uh, the meaning of zodiac signs and all that stuff sure because did. all of this is linked. Mm -hmm. Yes. 2020 has been a, <laughs> been a, been a monster. Mm -hmm. And I read a um, text, not a text, a uh, tweet from LeBron James. And he said, can we just start 2020 over again? Because Kobe died and then the pandemic yeah. and then Tim all of this stuff. We've been through something and Gail King, don't forget, I forgot what you said too. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> I digress. But <laughs> 2020 has been something. Yes. But out of all of the pain, mm -hmm. all of the suffering, mm -hmm. all of the ugly feelings, all of the deprivation, out of all of that, mm -hmm. 2020 has really lived up to its name. 2020. We're starting to see stuff. <laughs> Come on now. <laughs> We're starting to see things so clearly. And America is starting to see things so clearly until America actually is gaining a 2020. Mm. Woo! Okay. That's all I can say. That's all I can see. Audience, this is why I love this podcast and this individual because we bring things out. I'm so glad you said that about 2020. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, I, I can say that maybe we can kind of use that, you know, to bring it to a close. One of the things that I have often been saying in the last year is isn't it funny how hindsight is 2020? You look back and you go, man, I would have known then what I know mm -hmm. now. Correct. I wouldn't do certain things, right? Right. But then the thing that I notice is that when certain people really pay attention to the present, then your insight can be 2020, what's happening presently. The insight, like, okay, wait a minute. All this happening around me, then I need to behave a certain way or live a certain way. But don't act like I don't see it. And don't tell somebody who they're not when they tell you who, who you are. But wouldn't it really be great if foresight was 2020? Mm. If I can see what's going on and go, if we don't get this straight now, in 20 years, we won't be where we need to be. 
And I and I hope that what I see happening now is actually continuing to wake people up because it's not new. You know, like even what the protests are about is not new. That's not me saying that I'm desensitized and I don't care. I'm going, hey, look, everyone. That's why I said, what? What year was that when that happened? It's just 20 years ago. This stuff's been, been happening for 400 plus years. And we've only been free, what, technically, we've only been free, what has it been, somewhere between 56 and 64 years? If you actually look at that, our generation is the, the first free generation of black people in this country, for real. So I go, hey, y'all, you shouldn't be surprised at what's going on. Yeah, be hurt and shot, but you, you daggone sure should, should, shouldn't be surprised. And it's time for us to move forward. And then as we talk about the environment, we've been harvesting off of the environment for so long. So when we talk about, man, how do we make a change? It's about changing our behavior, changing what we see, and changing how we are. You know, but let me hear Pauls because you're an important person. You look like you wanted to say something, so I, I'll leave the last word to you, Doctor Perkins. Because hey, I was just saying that I just wanted to add. Well, that. Well, yes. I, I just, I just wanted to add. You said we're the first generation to be free, but that generation that below us is the first generation to be liberated. Think about that. That's why they were out there marching with signs that say. We are not our ancestors. We will F you up <laughs> because they were not that this, this was the first generation not to be um, born or birthed in any type of strategic systematic bondage. The first one, because our, gen our generation had the reminiscent of segregation and we were still coming out of that and reconstruction and all that stuff. Yep. But this generation there, think about it. This generation was born under Obama. Yeah. You follow me? Yeah. Different group, different. a completely different group, different aspect. And for those that weren't born under uh, Obama, when they came to realize what a president is or whatever, that was under Obama. You see what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. Th that's a totally different thing. But what I want to say is thank you. Thank you for having me. And also, um, I'm so proud of this brother being at Yale University doing his thing, <laughs> making a difference. Yeah, I had to pick him up a couple of times and, uh, and, yes. and spank him real More good, shake couple. him up a good. More and, than a couple, y'all. And so I, I brag about you all the time. I brag about Thank you me. all the time, Dr. Easley. And um, uh, uh, just so you know, I have passed up on a lot of offers um, to do um, television. Mm. podcast radio station and mm. i selected only four deal but when you call there was no hesitation i said absolutely i will go in there for my brother easily <laughs> so so congratulations to you and all that you're doing and um just keep moving forward and thanks again for having me i will do it thank you dr perkins thank you so much for your like i'll start again for your brilliance your courage and your graciousness and just teaching me and others and always being a beacon of not just brilliance, but light, hope. And then also what, I'm, I'll say this for me, because you helped me, of people that we can be, or people that we can be like, like so that we can, as you said, let's correct this hurt, and let's make this a better world, not just for us, but, but for other people. So I want to thank you for teaching me that and continuing to, to promote that and live that. And everyone, thank you for listening to this uh, latest episode of the Hallwood Podcast. You just heard me talking to Dr. Robert K. Perkins, Norfolk State University's finest Spartan pride all day. And I'm Dr. Thomas Richard Easley, representing the Yale School of the Environment and the Sarwell Podcast. Thank you. Until next time, take care.
Hardwood is a production of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies in New Haven, Connecticut. Our producer, engineer, and editor is Chris Perkins, a joint degree student between both the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies as well as the Yale School of Management, where he is getting a Master's in Environmental Management and a Master's in Business Administration. I am Thomas Richard Easley. We'll see you next time. Thank you.